over a period of years during my childhood and on through adolescence and into the teen years, I had a recurring dream many, many times. In these dreams, I would be standing looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, back and back, smaller and smaller, myself looking at myself in the mirror, seeing myself looking at myself in the mirror, endlessly. I was at at times amazed by this dream, um, quite fascinated by it and intrigued by it at times. And if I thought about it very much, I was quite perplexed by this dream. But mostly, I was just really very interested. Interested enough that it's the only dream that I clearly remember uh, experiencing from my early years. this dream eventually wove itself into the very fabric of my life. Beginning when at the age of 16, I discovered the Buddhist teachings because of a paper that I was required to write in high school about religions other than Judeo-Christian. Right then I had the distinct feeling of touching into a very deep sense of coming home. And the dream of looking in the mirror at myself, looking in the mirror, became the gist of the direction that my life has followed since. This evening's talk is the third in our non-linear series of talks on the three characteristics of all phenomena. The first that Miyoshin spoke about a few weeks ago being Anicca, the constantly changing, impermanent nature of all things, all situations, all experience, and every single phenomena that arises in our body-mind continuum. The second we explored was dukkha, the ultimately unsatisfactory nature of everything in this world, the outer world and the world of all of our inner experiences of body and mind not offering a sustaining sense of pleasure or happiness, but rather the dukkha of the round and round of pleasant and unpleasant, seemingly good and bad, liking and disliking, the dukkha of the rounds of conditioned existence, simply because of the natural and ongoing mortality of all things, all phenomena having the nature to pass away thus making it undependable in terms of giving us any ongoing sustaining satisfaction. This evening we'll begin to explore the not-self nature of it all. The reality that many peop- for many people seems to be the most difficult to touch, to know, and to live. And for some, though may it, be, it may be an intriguing reality, the thought, the imagined reality of no self may often be fraught with fear. In its essence, this third characteristic, this third truth, is so basic, so simple, that with even just a taste of it, It makes life so much easier to live. It's kind of amazing that so many of us are so fearful of 
stepping through the stepping through or lifting the thin veil of concept of an idea of belief that separates us from the reality of no self most of us live in and out of the idea the concept of a separate solid and even a static me i them him her that it and the possible future or the evaporated past it's true that stepping through the veil asks us to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished hopes and fears to let go of the attachment to all of our clung to and cherished self identities it's important to recognize that in letting go of our attachment we're not asked to throw our self out it's not about getting rid of what we think of as our self because it's a bad thing what's really asked of us is to simply recognize that everything we think of as our self everything we believe to be our self everything we think of and believed to be other selves just simply doesn't exist in any independent permanent changing solid static substantial way not even for one moment our so-called self is in constant flux so in truth there's nothing to attach to there's nothing to cling to essentially all of the buddha's teachings and practices lead to this the buddha refused to deal with things that didn't lead to the extinction of clinging to unreality that didn't lead to the extinction of dukkha it said he wouldn't even discuss questions that didn't directly deal in some way with understanding confusion and anguish he wasn't a teacher of philosophy he was a teacher of life a way of life a teacher of the practices that directly lead to an experiential understanding of the truth of the way of things he was a teacher of peace not a teacher of philosophy but a teacher of a very practical path to inner peace the essential aim of the teachings and practices is to look at in the mirror at ourselves and look with such sincerity humility and willingness that we begin to see ourselves more accurately which translates as beginning to see through ourselves by directly and essentially experiencing things in themselves without all the layers of meaning we invest things with when we're attached when we're identified with them so i i titled this evening's talk as through the looking glass the reality of no self it's actually very simple maybe not so easy but really very simple we're sitting 
pleasant is merely pleasant. Unpleasant is merely unpleasant. Heat is merely heat. Pressure is just pressure. Yellow or red is just yellow or red. Rising and falling is merely rising and falling. Memory is just memory. Thinking is merely thinking. All of these things, these occurrences, are merely, are just themselves. They're merely existing and rapidly changing conditions. Merely hot, merely cold, merely being a person. In the realm of conditioned, conditioned existence, there's no real, no true sustaining happiness, no real suffering, as Ajahn Chah says. It's because of self-grasping that we suffer. It's through the erroneous concept of self that we experience anguish and confusion. This is from the Chinese sage Nan Xin. By not quite accepting because they do not please us things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. We experience this and that, everything, anything. Can we keep looking? Can we keep looking to see that the thing, that things are only just so much? Can we look into the mirror of ourself without investing a layer of meaning? over top of what we see. We think in terms of my foot, my arm, my nose, my hair, my house, my friends. This is how we create self again and again and again. This is how we see, this is how we know self. The Buddha had an amazing way of turning things right around. He taught, this isn't seeing self. It's in the understanding that they are not self is seeing self. The mirror of the Dhamma. Looking in the mirror at myself. Looking in the mirror. Myself looking at myself in the mirror. Seeing the truth of myself looking at myself in the mirror. If we continue to investigate with willingness and humility, it's inevitable that eventually our habitual perception will change. The knot, the tangle, the tightly grasped belief that there is self and that there are things belonging to self will gradually untangle, will come undone. When this erroneous sense of things is no longer our primary orientation to life, the opposite way 
of perceiving will quite naturally, steadily increase. Can we observe experience, inquire into phenomena without interpretation, without analysis or evaluation, but connect and sustain with a bare, simple attention, a non-interpretive, non-comparative, attention. It's only then that the observer, the so-called self, and what is being observed, investigated, are no longer separate. No me and it. There's merely rising and falling. Merely heat just a thought arising and passing. No duality, as it's sometimes called. No two. Just this present moment, just as it is. And then finally, or For just a moment, it's not all about me and the painful contraction that accompanies me and mine based in the fear of losing something. For a moment, there's nothing, no thing. For a moment, the heart, the mind, is free. Stephen Mitchell's version of the Narcissus story offers a potent metaphor in this direction. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough, with its long eyelashes, full lips, and stately nose sloping to a curious plateau under the tip, or near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled, or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. It's a heavy load, a heavy burden to carry our self around, our body, the myriad permutations of our thoughts, all the hopes and fears. We shoulder a heavy burden carrying around the things in life in the form of thoughts, feelings, beliefs that they're mine me, myself. The burden, the sting of carrying it all with a sense of ownership and identification. The Buddha offers us a metaphor 
of seeing a poisonous snake. But if you don't pick it up, there's no poisonous bite. It's still a snake, but the poison hasn't touched you, hasn't gotten to you. Can we come to know about phenomena so clearly, so truly, that we simply and genuinely don't get entangled, don't get stung, don't get caught up with it? Therein lies the potential for peace of mind. Life still happens. We make use of things in this world as is appropriate. We keep looking and seeing, living life, living much more freely and fully, right here and now. Ordinary life becomes our practice, our teacher, right here on retreat as we lift a cup and fill it with water, as we sit and notice, receive, and simply know the gap between the out-breath and the in-breath. This is a poem by Jane Hirschfield, titled, Only When I Am Quiet and Do Not Speak. Only when I am quiet for a long time and do not speak do the objects of my life draw near. Shy the scissors and spoons, the blue mug, hesitant even the towels for all their intimate knowledge and scent of fresh bleach. How steady their regard as they ponder, dreaming and waking, the entrancement of my daily wanderings and tasks. Drunk on the honey of feelings, the honey of purpose, they seem to be thinking. A quiet judgment that glistens between the glass doorknobs. Yet theirs is not the false reserve of a scarcely concealed ill will, nor that other active shying of pelted rocks. No, not that. For I hear the sigh of happiness each object gives off if I glimpse for even an instant the actual instant as if they believed it possible I might join their circle of simple, passionate thusness, their hidden rituals of luck and solitude, the joyous gap in them where appears in us the pronoun I. Our whole life becomes our practice as we begin to touch into the realization that nothing is really ours, that all things are constantly changing within themselves and in relationship to each other, that even this body is merely a collection of constantly changing interdependent processes. Do I reside in the belly or the rumbling sensations therein? Is the in-breath, the sensation of the in-breath, me? Am I the foot? Do I reside in the cool, fluid vibration of the foot moving through space? 
we might think, okay, I'm not the foot, not the sensation of the in-breath, but certainly my mind or my consciousness is me. I mean, without my mind, without my individual consciousness, who would I be? One of the things most of us cling to most tenaciously and unwittingly is what we think of as our mind, our conscious mind. Where and what is it that we call mind? Where is the mind? Can you find it? Does the mind have a shape, a color, a texture? Is the mind in the body? Is it coming from somewhere outside the body or from someone else? Do you find anything we could call mind? Am I the mind? Is the mind me? What is the essential nature of mind? Is it different from the nature of body or from the nature of anything? Again, the Buddha, directly out of his own experience, turns our ordinary ways of thinking about things upside down. Even our precious, our cherished individual consciousness is a conditional phenomenon. It, too, arises and passes away, moment by moment. It, too, is dependent on clinging, dependent on the feeling of pleasant or unpleasant that arises because of contact through one of the six sense doors, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thought, dependent on the mental constructs and labels that arise in the conscious mind through contact. The arising of our individual consciousness is totally dependent on all this. And thus, it itself is not permanent, not constant, not steady, not dependable, not self. The conscious mind arises and passes moment by moment, just like every other conditioned phenomena. It's from this perspective that the Buddha speaks about consciousness being conditional, and it being one of the arising conditions that can lead to the condition of suffering. In one who is awakened, one who is liberated, there's no consciousness as it's ordinarily experienced. And this is from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. When one does not intend, and one does not plan, and one does not have a tendency towards anything, no basis exists for the maintenance of individual consciousness. When there is no basis, there is no support for the establishment of consciousness. When consciousness is unestablished, it doesn't come to growth. There's no inclination. When there's no inclination, there's no coming and going. When there's no coming and going, there's no passing away 
and being born. When there's no passing away and being born, future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair cease. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. As awakening beings, can we begin to directly experience and know the interdependent nature of all things? Begin to see in one Dhamma, one truth, all Dhammas. See in all Dhammas the one, the one Dhamma. See the one in the many, the many in the one. Begin to see in the one the endless immeasurable flow the process of life unfolding, or in the overall ongoing immeasurable flow of life as it unfolds, can we begin to see the one, the one truth? Again, the mirror of the Dhamma. This is from an 8th century Chinese sage. Nature may be compared to a vast ocean. Thousands and millions of changes are taking place in it. Crocodiles and fish are essentially the same substance as the water in which they live. Humans are crowded together with the myriad other things in the great changingness. And our nature is one with that of all other natural things. Knowing that, knowing that I am the same nature as all other natural things, I know that there's really no separate self, no separate personality, no absolute death, and no absolute life. and a wonderfully simple poem by Jim Harrison. I've decided to make up my mind about nothing, to assume the water mask, to finish my life disguised as a creek, an eddy, joining at night the full sweet flow to absorb the sky, to swallow the heat and cold, the moon and the stars, to swallow myself in ceaseless flow. As we move into the last part of this evening's talk, I'll offer you two brief guided meditations, beginning with the possibility of allowing the mind to open to an image in relationship to the words that I'll be speaking. Or if an image doesn't come easily, simply allowing a felt sense to permeate in relationship to the following descriptive words. So beginning with closing the eyes. Visualizing or sensing on some level an enormous jeweled net a net of infinite, of boundless proportions. 
and letting this fill your mind, fill your heart. This net is woven of an infinite variety of brilliant crystal gems, each with countless facets. At each point where the strings of the net meet, there's a brilliant, highly reflective, multifaceted gem. And so each gem, each jewel, reflects in itself every other gem in the net, while at the same time its image is reflected in each of the other gems. In this image, this vision, each jewel contains all the other jewels. To look at one jewel at any point is to see the reflection of all of the other gems at all of the points in the net. A boundless net of beginningless, endless, radiating aliveness. Now, letting the image or the felt sense just simply dissolve. The intricately interwoven tapestry of life, with everything constantly changing and everything reflecting everything in this many hued and faceted jeweled net of life. This is the relative side of selflessness, the relative side of no self. This is the ground of understanding the aspect of wisdom of no self that compassion springs from. One of the two wings with which we fly free. The awakened act only from the heart of compassion because of the pervasive clarity of understanding that there is only relationship. There is only interbeing, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. There is no separate, no isolated, independent you. No separate me. And this is from Shantideva, a century Buddhist monk. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, What's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. And now the second guided meditation. In the mind's eye, visualize or 
simply open to a felt sense of a vast, clear, empty, endless sky or sky-like space. Just relaxing and staying open and present with this. Now beginning to picture a few clouds of different shapes and sizes forming in this space this sky-like space. The clouds are moving, changing shape, dissolving. New clouds appearing and disappearing. in this visualization or felt sense. Just simply let the mind rest in the openness of the sky, the space. Not fixating on the clouds, but just simply being aware of their arising, moving, changing, and passing away. If at any point all the clouds disappear, simply allow the mind to rest in the vast, clear, empty, endless sky-like space. And now let the image fade away. And just sit for a moment, letting the mind open wide, letting the awareness be spacious, not fixing any edges to it. And now, for a moment, turn the awareness around to look at itself. Not looking for anything, just aware of awareness itself, just knowing the knowing. Who knows? Who knows? And now bringing the attention back into the body, back to the breath, back to hearing. As we learn to step back and open up, so to say, and face the looking glass with a willingness and humility, 
we begin to touch the empty essence of all things, the vast, open, empty essence of all, that all things emerge out of and dissolve back into. We look in. We keep looking, whether we're standing, sitting, moving, or lying down. Our practice is to keep looking through the clear mirror of the Dhamma. We see that everything, all things, are arising, changing, and passing away. We see that because of this, there's no thing that satisfies, no thing that brings pleasure, joy, ease, in an ongoing, sustained way. We understand that we can't depend on anything in this world of our own body-mind continuum or the world around us to make us truly happy and at ease. And we continue to just simply, humbly look into the mirror of ourself, looking into the mirror. Look into the mirror at ourself, looking into the mirror. going back and back into this mirror of ourself, awareness becomes more and more open, empty, spacious, back and back to the source of itself, back to the source of all things. Instead of finding some solid, static, separate something, some solid I, me, some fixed eternal entity, we get back to this vastness, this spaciousness of mind, spaciousness of being. In this there's no I and no other, no duality. In this emptiness, this essential emptiness, there's an ease. The equipoise of the deepest ease of well-being. As long as we're in the realm of I, me, mine, and other. We're residing somewhere next door to reality. And it creates huge problems. The greatest problems. The greatest suffering we can experience. We have a sense of being separate, being an isolated, separate entity. This is the cause of our fundamental pain, our fundamental suffering. The core loneliness, the core pain that human beings feel. From Kalu Rinpoche, we live in the illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality We are that reality. When we understand this, we see that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. And a story, uh, a true story, about a friend of mine who in his 40s was 
suffering quite acutely from this core loneliness. So he decided to see a therapist for the very first time in his life. And with the advice from friends, he picked a therapist who had a Buddhist spiritual orientation. He was told that it might be helpful if he brought some symbol of his problem, some symbol of his concern with him for this first therapy session. He arrived at the therapist's office toting a huge load of baggage of all different colors and sizes and set them down in the waiting room and then went out and got another load, piling all of these on top of the first load. He said that he had to go around collecting baggage from his friends and his relatives because he didn't have enough of his own. When it came time to go into the therapist's office, he took all of his baggage in with him. And at some point during this first session, the therapist, in her wisdom, asked my friend to open all the baggage up. There wasn't anything inside. It was all empty. When we begin to taste the truth of no self, when we touch this simple reality, there can at first be a poignancy. And then maybe a sense of measureless beauty being entered into. And then, often, there's a feeling of great relief. Like finally putting down a heavy load we've been carrying around unwittingly. Not knowing the difference until we begin to recognize the load and its nature. And then simply just set it down. There's a story of a woman who had practiced for many, many years and had some powerful and even expansive experiences and a number of illuminating insights. But still, she hadn't felt she hadn't reached the goal. And as she was getting up in years and feeling that there wasn't much time left, and she really, really wanted freedom in this lifetime. She decided to take herself up through the top of a particular mountain to see the wise one whom she'd heard ha, was able to turn the mind, turn the heart right into the truth. As she was nearing the end of her arduous hike up the mountain. An old man carrying a satchel on his back passed her on his way down the mountain. Just as he passed, the woman stopped and called out to him. He stopped and he turned around. The woman asked him if he knew anything about the wise one who lived up on the top of the mountain and explain that she was on her way up to see this being because she wanted to know the deepest truth, the ultimate wisdom, so that she could be fully awakened and free in this very lifetime, awakened and liberated from all of her confusion, anguish, and striving. She told the old man that She'd heard that the wise one at the top of the mountain might be the one to reveal this to her. The old man stood still and looked at her briefly. And then taking his time, he slowly turned around and continued walking down the mountain for a few steps. And then he stopped again. 
and again stood still briefly, slowly turned around towards the woman, carefully took the satchel that he was carrying off his back, set it down on the ground, turned around again, and walked on down the mountain towards the village. And so the two wings of awakening with which we fly free, the wing of wisdom, the liberating equipoise of unfettered, of pure awareness in relationship to all the phenomena that arises and passes through the six sense doors. This liberating wisdom that comes about via our experiential insight into the emptiness, the empty essence, the not-self nature of all things. and the wing of compassion, our heartfelt connection to beings, the ground of which is a profound understanding of the essential interconnectedness of all beings, all things, the relative aspect of understanding no self. This wing of freedom is that which connects us, connects the liberating understanding of the absolute emptiness of self to the relative nature of our humanness and informs the way we be, how we act in this world. To truly fly free, We need both wings. And closing the talk with some words from the Buddha. This is from the Udana, the inspired utterances of the Buddha. In the seen, there is only the seen. In the heard, there is only the heard. In the sensed, there is only the sensed. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. Thus you should see that indeed there is no thing here. This bahia is how you should train yourself. Since bahia there is for you in the seen, only the seen. In the heard, only the heard, in the sensed, only the sensed, in the cognized, only the cognized. And you see that there is no thing here. You will therefore see that there is indeed no thing there. And as you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this nor in the world of that, nor in any place betwixt the two. This alone is the end of suffering. And let's just sit for a moment.
This talk was given by Marsha Rose at Forest Refuge on October 31, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.